0: Pray with me if you would. Father, there are many of us who come in this place today with heavy hearts. We have things pressing upon us. It's a time of year that brings great joy for many, but it's a time of year that just heightens the pain in relationships with others, it it heightens the loneliness. Father, we need you. And ultimately, we need you because we have this problem with sin. That is, we just sang, we, we need you to come. We need you to cast out our sin and to enter in today and tomorrow and the next day. We need you, Father. We need to abide in you. We need you abiding in us. Would you teach us this morning as we come to your word? May we grow because of it. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead if you haven't already and open them to Leviticus 16 and Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're doing that, let me ask you a question. Do you know what a game changer is? Game changers are not something that are just related to sporting events. Game changers are something that uh, they're part of everyday life in reality. Webster defines a game changer as this. He says a game changer is a newly introduced element or factor that changes an existing situation or activity in a significant way. So we have an existing activity or situation, something new is introduced, and it is radically changed in a significant way. That is a game changer. Now, I don't know if any of you have had game-changing events in your life, but let me tell you, every one of you has been a game changer because when your mom said, I'm pregnant... That's a game changer. And when this baby is introduced, that's a game changer. And when we introduce new things like crawling and walking and talking, these are all game-changing events. Things of the past will not be the same anymore. Okay? The Bible is full of game-changing events. That's what the Bible is. And a lot of times we recognize these game-changing events by phrases, and I love some of these phrases. We will read things like in Galatians one, "But when God," game changer. Romans eight, "I am convinced." Ephesians uh, two, Philippians—excuse me, Ephesians two, Colossians three, in which you used to walk. And then you get passages that we look at a lot this time of year in Luke and in Matthew and the Gospels where we read, and she gave birth. It's a game-changing event. Now the reality is a lot of us, these game-changing events have either happened so far back in our personal history or so far back in human history, we don't recognize how big of a game-changing event it was. I mean, this is true of of Scripture, and this is what's hard for us, is we don't understand how big of a statement it was. As Junior told us last week, there's going to be a greater prophet than Moses? We look at that and go, of course. Oh, but in its day, that would have been unheard of. A greater king than David? See, we don't grasp at times how big these game-changing events are. And let me give you an example of one in our own culture, in our own life. It is a game-changing event, but I bet most of you do not think about it on a daily basis. Imagine if this was removed from your life. Electricity. We don't even think about it. A lot of you would be in trouble because you wouldn't be able to do your Christmas shopping now. Amazon.com would no longer exist. You'd have to actually go to a store and buy gifts. You wouldn't be able to do it online. You wouldn't be able to scan that QR code in your program. We understand that electricity has a huge impact. Our culture would be radically different if that was removed. And yet none of us lives our life At all of thinking about, gee, what would it be like without electricity? It's been there for all of us, all of our lives. And we just assume that that's the way it's always been and that's the way it will be. But it was a game-changing event. We're looking this month, this Advent season, at Jesus fulfilling four roles. Prophet, priest, King and lamb. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So today we are looking at priests and how Jesus fulfilled the priesthood. And we're gonna be looking at it in four uh, four ways. We're gonna look at, first of all, what is the purpose of the priesthood? How was this accomplished in the past? Why is Jesus the more perfect priest, and then what impact does that have on us in the present? So we're looking at purpose, past, perfect, and present is what we're gonna go to today. So why did God set up the priesthood? Why the tabernacle? Why the priesthood? Why was this done by God? Well, most of us would answer that question by simply stating what is it that a priest does. Now, last week, as we heard, we heard that a prophet stands before God and faces the people and says, thus saith the Lord. But a priest is one who stands before people and faces God and intercedes on behalf of the people to God. So the first role of a priest is to be an intercessor. Intercessor. And the other thing that the priest will do is the priest is one who will come and stand before God and offer sacrifices to make atonement for sin. So a priest is an intercessor and one who makes atonement. Is that it? Oh, those are critical. Those are vital. But is that the end? Or is that a means to the end? So I decided, well, let me go back and look at Exodus 20. Let's look at where God gives the law to Israel, and let's look and see what what he says about it there. Now, let me take a sidebar just for a minute before we look at the the priest in Exodus in the law. Let me just take a brief sidebar, because when you get to, uh, to passages like the law of Exodus, you see a lot of commands from God. And what we have to understand is in Scripture, when we see God making commands, imperatives, telling us what we are to do and what we are not to do, what we have to understand is all those commands are grounded in the character of God. We must see them as being grounded in the character of God. So, for instance, this summer we went through the book of Titus. Titus was a little book, lots of imperatives, lots of commands, do, do not do. Chapter one, elders do and do not do. This is the quality, this is the characteristics that an elder should have. This is what they should and should not be doing. Chapter two, we looked at older and younger men and women and slaves, how are they to conduct their life in the household? Lot of commands. And then we got to chapter two, verse 11 of Titus and he grounds it and he says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It is grounded in the revealed saving grace of God. That's what all these imperatives are grounded in. Well, likewise, if you go to Exodus and you look at the law, you will first see before God gives them the law, he grounds it. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says this to Israel I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am your Savior... I am the one who heard your cries from Egypt. I am the one who loosens Pharaoh's grip on you. I am the one who held back the waters of the Red Sea when Pharaoh decided to hunt you down. I am the one who brought water out of a rock when you were thirsty, put food on the ground when you were hungry. I am the one who is leading you to a promised land that I have prepared for you. I am the one who has handed your enemies over to you. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery therefore have no other gods before me and we go oh that makes sense because it's grounded in who God is the second thing you see when you see commands like that is one it's grounded in God the second is he actually equips us and allows us to be able to do what he's asked us to do So again, we go back to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The first three words of the next verse. It teaches us. God's grace is what teaches us. It trains us. It equips us to be able to do what? Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He is the one who equips us and gives us the ability to be able to do that. Well, likewise, when you go back to Exodus and you read through Exodus, one of the things I would encourage you if you do that is to look for a word, a, two-phrase, uh, a two-word phrase, I will. And see how many of them there are related to God. Dozens. In fact, if you go to, uh, we won't look at it this morning, but if you want to look up Exodus 6, verse 6 to 8, three verses, you will see seven I wills in those three verses of what God will do. You'll see two I am's in those three verses. When God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I need you to go before Pharaoh, what does Moses say? I'm not a man of eloquent speech. I can't do that. And how does God respond? Moses, who made your mouth? I made your mouth, Moses. I will be with your mouth. I will help you say what you need to say. See, I will do this, Moses. We read farther in Exodus when God has given them the commands for building the tabernacle. And look at what he says in Exodus 28.3. He says, tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as a priest. We keep going. Exodus 35, 30 to 35. Look at all these things that God has done. He has filled them with the Spirit, with all these skills and ability and knowledge and all these crafts and, and gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. He says, and, and he, God, has given them the ability to teach others. He has filled them with all these skills. The very last phrase there, all of them, master, craftsmen, and designers. See, God grounds what he says in his word, in his character, and secondly, he equips us to be able to do what he asks us to do. Okay, end of sidebar. So we go to the law, and we look for where is it, what do we see about God saying about the priest? And we get to Exodus 25, and we, he tells them to bring an offering to him for the tabernacle they're going to build. And remember, again, where did they get what they were going to bring in that offering? But God gave it to them when they left Egypt. And he says, bring me an offering. And what does he say to them? Then, in verse 8, have them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell Among them. Game changer. He goes on, chapter 25 to 27, gives us the detail of the tabernacle and how to build it. And at the end of the Ark of the Covenant, in verse 22, he says to Moses, There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. He continues on. Chapter 28 is the priestly garments. Chapter 29 is the consecration and the purification of the priest, a seven-day process that they will go through to be purified, to serve God as a priest. And when it's all done at the end of chapter 29 in verse 42, he says, for the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will Meet with you and speak to you, and I will also meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priest. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, it seems to me that the purpose of atonement, we need atonement, that the purpose of atonement ultimately is to result in the repairing, the restoring of a relationship with God. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. And when they sinned against God's moral law, when they withheld from God the glory and honor that was due him and him alone. So we created this massive tear and sever in our relationship with God. But one of the first things that we see God doing after man sinned, we see God coming to man. Where are you? See, God already has started moving towards us. It says that God came down to rescue uh, Israel out of Egypt. God said to Moses, Moses, come up to Mount Sinai. I'm going to come down and I'm going to meet with you on Mount Sinai. Moses, build me a tabernacle. You aren't going to have to come up the mountain anymore. I'm going to come all the way down to where you are. I'm going to live among you. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to be with you. But God was not, that was not the end of his plan. He wants so much more. And so we read in Matthew that the virgin will conceive a son, quoting from Isaiah. She will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. So the purpose of the priesthood is to make atonement so that we can restore our relationship with God. Well, how was this done in the past? As you heard Leviticus 16 being read to you this morning, I hope you picked up on a couple things. First of all, did you see the holiness of God? Tell Aaron to only come before me this way, or he will die. When you come, Aaron, into the most holy place, you bring the censer of fire and the incense, and you do that before so that it creates a smoke and it covers the altar that covers the mercy seat. Why? So that you will not die. We see this over and over again. And what we realize is man in his sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God unveiled. It will not work. We will die in his presence. That is the characteristic of his holiness. Let me help describe it this way. Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, says this, he says God is not mean but he is dangerous it is the same with other great forces that he has placed in reality, electricity and nuclear power for example they're not mean but they are dangerous right he goes on to say you don't cross them, I mean you don't just go in and grab a handful of uranium, it, it doesn't work that way If you know anybody that works with high power, megawatts of power, they never walk into an area where megawatts of power are being worked on. Why? Because it is the characteristic of electricity that it will arc to you and you will be dead. Electricity doesn't look to see how you're dressed or who you are or what side of the tracks you came from. That is just the characteristic of electricity. That is what it does. God is so holy beyond our imagination of holy that sin cannot walk into his presence or we will die. The second thing I hope you saw in that was exactly that. As holy as God is, I hope you saw how sinful we are. See, bring a sin offering, what? For your sins, priest, and the sins of your household, For the sins of all the people, for their iniquities, for their transgressions, for their uncleanness, for their rebellion, for their wickedness. We see all this sin of man. And that sin needs to be paid for. And how is it paid for? With blood. And so the other thing you will see is all the blood that is being shed. The goats and the bulls that are being sacrificed and blood being sprinkled. Years ago at the church we were going to, they brought in and had set up for several weeks a life-size replica-scale tabernacle. And maybe some of you had the opportunity to go see it. I'm not sure what the word is to describe it. As I walk through it, awe would be one word. But it's very hard for us to even, just even try to understand what that would have been in the Old Testament days. I never would have come close to walking into a holy of holies, but we walk through this tabernacle, and we see it all, and there was one thing just conspicuously missing in this entire tabernacle, blood. There was none. See, scripture tells us that even when the temple uh, tabernacle was consecrated, there was blood sprinkled on the curtains. There were blood sprinkled on all the instruments that were used in the tabernacle, that when the The priest comes in and makes offering. You heard him say, they're sprinkling blood on the altar. I don't think they would do what we would do. We have a big day coming up. What do we do? We clean everything up. We make it pretty and pristine. I don't think a week before the Day of Atonement, they took the Ark of the Covenant out and said, let's do a buff and polish on it. Let's scrub off all that old blood from all these centuries that we have been doing that. No, that thing is covered with blood. Not just blood from today, but from last year, last week, last century. Dried, crusty blood all over the Ark of the Covenant, all over the tabernacle. So this day comes. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's still celebrated today by Jews, Yom Kippur. It's the 10th day of the 7th month of the Jewish calendar usually lands in somewhere in the first couple weeks of September, I believe, in our calendar. And it is the one day of the year where the high priest, all by himself, nobody else, if you saw that, in the holy tent, nobody in the holy of holies or in the holy place, but one priest, the high priest, will stand before the altar of God and he will present an offering to make atonement for sin. Well, how does he do this? Well, as we saw in verse 11, the first thing that priest does is he sacrifices a bull. You see, he needs to make atonement for himself first. And so he goes in to the Holy of Holies with blood, and he sprinkles it on the altar, and he sprinkles it before the altar, and he makes atonement for his sins and the sins of his family. When he is done making that atonement offering, he goes back out, and they will have two goats. Both goats are necessary for the atonement process. One goat is going to be slaughtered, and again, its blood will be taken into the, most, the holy place, and again, it will be sprinkled, and he will offer it as, a, as an offering to God. And when he is done making that offering to God in atonement for the people's sins, he comes back out and to the other goat, he will place his hands on the head of that goat and he will confess all the sins, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and it will be transferred to that goat and that goat will be taken out of the city walls and taken to a remote place and set free. I read later, they started killing that goat. Because can you imagine what would happen if that goat came back? You know, all of our sins, they're back. But these two goats were necessary, why? The one goat showed the propitiation for sin, the shedding of blood that is gonna pay the debt of sin. The other goat shows that our sin is being removed from us. It is being taken away from us. But again, this is the interesting thing. That priest gets done. And he will go through more purification process after he has done all this atonement. And then he will come back and he will put back on his royal priestly garments. And he'll start at it again, day after day, offering sacrifices for sin. And in a year, we're gonna do Day of Atonement again and again, and they will do this for decades, centuries, millennia because this is not the solution. This is a type and shadow pointing to a solution. We need a game changer. We need a game changer. Matthew says, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name of Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. So why did Why did we need a God-man? Why is Jesus the more perfect high priest? Well, let me summarize it this way. As I said, in the garden, when man sinned against God and withheld God the glory and honor that he was due, man was guilty of a crime against God, and man must pay the debt for that crime. But what do I give a God who is infinite, eternal, And holds the universe in the palm of his hand. What do I give him? I can't repay the debt. Man has no capability, capacity to repay that debt. So we have a problem because man is culpable of the offense, but man is not capable of paying the debt. Who is capable? God. God is capable of paying the debt. But we have another problem. Because while God is capable, he is not culpable. It is not his debt to pay. Man must pay the debt. So man is culpable, not capable. God is capable, not culpable. What do we need? We need a God-man. We need one who is going to come as a man and he is going to stand before God as a man because man owes this debt and he's going to pay the price for, for our sin and he actually has the capability of paying the debt. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, that man, Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Look at Romans 5. For just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. You see, we need a God-man who can intercede on our behalf. And so Mary gives birth to a son and she lays him in a manger. And from that moment till the moment he's hanging on a cross and says, it is finished. He is preparing to be our high priest. When the shepherds come and worship him, he's preparing to be our high priest. When the wise men come later and bring gifts to him, he's preparing to be our high priest. When he When his family flees to Egypt, when he grows up in Nazareth, when he plays with the other kids, when he learns to be a carpenter, he's becoming our high priest. When he goes to the temple, when he celebrates all the festivals and Passovers and all the traditions of Jewish law, which he kept perfectly, he's preparing to be our high priest. When he taught, when he healed, when he hung on a cross... He was preparing to be our high priest. Why? Look at what Hebrews says. Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus wasn't just tempted when Satan took him out in the the wilderness and, and out in the desert and asked him a couple questions. That was not the only time Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted his entire life, just like you and I are. Every day of our life, every moment of his 33 years, he was tempted. And yet, he was without sin, he was preparing to be our high priest. Hebrews 7, 26, such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He is our perfect high priest. Now, how does Jesus, our high priest, make atonement that is different from what all the high priests before him ever did. Did you see in the Hebrews passage in verse 11, where is it that Jesus goes? Jesus doesn't go into a man-made tabernacle. Jesus went into the real tabernacle. He went into the tabernacle in heaven. And notice the other thing he didn't do. He didn't stop and slaughter a bull because you you gotta offer a sacrifice for your own sins before you go into the Holy of Holies. No, Jesus, in that passage, you see, he goes right into the holy of holies. Why? Because he was perfect and holy. But he didn't go into the holy of holies without blood on his hands. Oh, he's still going into the Holy of Holies with blood on his hands because he does need to make atonement for the people. He doesn't need atonement, but the people need atonement. And so he comes into the Holy of Holies with blood on his hands to present an offering to God. But this high priest doesn't just present the offering. He is the offering. He is the lamb who was slain for our sins. Remember the high, high priest in the Old Testament, they put their hands on the goat to transfer all the sins to the goat that it would be taken away. What does God do? God, in essence, puts his hands on Jesus and says, on him, I will place all the iniquities. They're placed on him, and he dies And he's taken outside the gate, and he removes our sins from us. And this high priest comes in with the perfect sacrifice, as a perfect priest, and when he's done making his offering for atonement, he sits down. Radical. No priest would sit down after they made their offerings Every other high priest, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, every other high priest, day after day, every priest stands to perform his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but when this priest, game-changer, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? Because the day of atonement ran into the day of the cross, and it's done. It's done. What the Old Testament, where all the high priests before him repeated over and over again, Jesus completed. It's done. And he sits down, But remember, the priest has two roles. Well, first, let me show you these passages. Look at all these passages, and just just in Hebrews, you'll find them all through the New Testament. But this is a permanent, eternal salvation. This is completed. It's eternal. It's one sacrifice, one time, eternal salvation, eternal redemption. It is done completely for us. But this priest sits down. Well, he's not done with his priestly duties. One was atonement. He's taking care of that one. What's the other priestly duty? Intercession. Romans 8 says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father, and he also is interceding for us. He also Who's also, well, we read a few verses earlier in Hebrews, excuse me, in Romans 8, that the Spirit will intercede for us. So we have the Spirit and we have the Son interceding to the Father for us. That's a pretty good team. That's a pretty good team. But Jesus does one other radical thing that no high priest would ever consider doing he tears down the curtain. He tears down the curtain and says, come on in. Come on in. If you're in my, under my blood, come on in. He says, come, draw near to God. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, Remember, atonement is not the end, I don't think. Restored relationship is the end. And Jesus says, I made atonement. Relationship is restored. Come on in. Come on in. Let us draw near to God, verse 22, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. He invites us into the holy place. No priest would have done that before. So what does this mean to us in the present day? How should this impact our life? In Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Paul says that. Notice the game-changing language. Notice it. And you, who once were, you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's who you once were. That was the reality, and something new was introduced. What was introduced? Yet now, game changer, you have been reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death, in the body of Jesus, this man has reconciled us to God. Why? So that, so that he may present you holy, blameless, irreproachable in his sight. Now, do you understand what presenting you holy means? This is not our kind of holy. This is God holy. He presents you as holy. Who is allowed to walk into the most holy place? Could a priest walk in there who was unholy? No. Why can we walk into the most holy place and stand before God? Because under his blood, Jesus has made us holy. God did not change his rules about how you can come before him. God did not change his character about what would happen if sin walked before him. What God changed was you and me. And he makes us holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. Ephesians 5, 25 says the same thing. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, as the result of what this high priest has done, you are holy. But you are also a priest who is it that goes into the Holy of Holies? Priest. Guess what? You're a priest. You go into the Holy of Holies. First Peter says you are a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are people who are invited right into the throne room of God. It is our right. It is our privilege. It is our responsibility to come into the throne room of God and be priest. And what does a priest do? Intercedes. And we intercede on behalf of our families, ourselves. We intercede on behalf of the church, the community, culture in large, the, the, the global church. We come into the presence of God and we intercede. And how do we do that? We do that in prayer. We do that in prayer. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're doing this Sunday talking about priesthood and this Sunday is the day of our house of prayer. I don't think that's a coincidence I'm going to urge every one of you, every one of you, that after this service, go and be a priest right upstairs. And at the house of prayer, come and intercede. You have the privilege of standing in the throne room of God. Go and intercede. But you aren't just a priest here at church, you're a priest in your home. You're a priest at your work. You're a priest at your school. You're a priest everywhere you are. You are one who is to intercede for. You are holy. You are a priest. And you are a temple. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 says, In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We as a global church, we as a corporate church, as a church of America, as a church of the world, big church, we are the temple of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, and he says, and you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You are a temple of God. You have the spirit of God indwelling in you. See, God was not content with stopping with God with us. He's moving to God in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have not turned to him for the forgiveness of sins. That's what this season is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. The gift-giving is because of this ultimate gift. Jesus came as a baby. God, man. He came and he took on flesh for the purpose. One of his purposes was to become your high priest. He is your prophet, your priest, your king, and your lamb. And he comes to be your high priest, and he comes to make a permanent atonement for your sins so that you can have restored relationship with God. And he offers it to you. I give it to you, he says. It's yours. Trust me. Will you accept my substitutionary atonement for you? And he offers that to you, and I would pray that you would consider that. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you a question. And it's a hard question. It's a hypothetical question. But it's a hard question because it points out something. It points out a reality. And I'm going to ask it of you because I've asked it of myself many times. And if I'm honest with you, I will tell you, I don't like the answer. But we've been talking about game changers today. So let me ask you two game changers. Which would have a greater impact on your life if it was removed? You are a temple which God lives by his spirit or electricity. See, we understand this one. But the problem is we're thinking over here that we can do all this by ourselves. We think I'm doing pretty good. I don't really draw on the Holy Spirit who's been given to me. I don't ask for his help. I don't ask for his wisdom. I'm doing it on my own. So if he went away, I probably wouldn't even notice. See, he was given to us as a comforter. He was given to us as a helper. It's through his power that Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So are we drawing on the Holy Spirit to do our work, to do our schooling, to have a conversation with somebody, to deal with relationships in our marriages, in our families, in our raising of our children? Are we going to the Holy Spirit and saying, Spirit of God, help me. I cannot do this without you. Or are we just operating as if he was not there? You have the ability and the privilege to step into the throne room of God that Jesus has opened for you as our high priest and to stand and talk to God and be in relationship with him. The Hebrews writer writes in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that you may have mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son, that you decided that you didn't just want to dwell among us, you wanted to dwell in us. You had so much more planned for us. Thank you for Jesus coming and being our high priest, for him making the permanent atonement for our sins, for him restoring relationship with you, for him opening the curtains that we might draw near to God. Oh, would we take advantage of that, Father, that indescribable, game-changing gift that you have given us. In your name we pray. Amen.